The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, forgive us that we so often reduce your work. We don't see its scope, its breadth, its comprehensiveness. That not only were you born into this world, ministered amongst us, died on a cross, was raised from the dead on the third day, but you were ascended into the right hand of the Father on high, into your heavenly throne room from where you are ruling and reigning through your word and the power of the Spirit to minister, to act upon us so that you are present here amongst us in and through your word. And we pray that you would work and act upon us, forming us into the image of Jesus Christ, into his likeness, that you would comfort and challenge, convict and confront, that we would encounter you through your word this morning. So help us to recognize we are not just entering into this text for information. You personally are meeting us here this morning. You personally are working upon us. So we humbly ask that you would give us dependent hearts, submissive hearts, yielded hearts, that our hearts would be soft and open to submit to your word this morning. We pray this prayer of illumination in Jesus' name, through him, our only mediator. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we're going to read as we're continuing our series of encountering Jesus, kind of looking through uh, snapshots of Jesus in Luke's gospel. We've encountered Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. We encountered Jesus in his transfiguration in glory. This morning we are encountering Jesus and encountering his love and his grace. And one of the things, this is one of the most famous and well-known stories of Jesus, the story of the prodigal son, or I actually think it's more the story of the prodigal sons. They're both prodigal in their own way. It's tempting, it's easy for us to over-sentimentalize the love of God, to think of it as nothing more than a, a warm, squishy feeling. We're truly missing the point of the story if we do that. Love is the most transformative force and dynamic power in the universe, and it's the love of Christ that genuinely changes us and transforms us. It's a long scripture reading, but I am going to ask you, if you're able, if you're not, please feel free to stay seated, but if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, to give us a little context, and then verses 11 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And in verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And, unbelievably so, if I may say so, he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, 
He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Listen to the word of God in a couple of instances in the New Testament and the instructions we receive from God's word concerning love. In John chapter 15, Jesus is giving what is commonly known as his upper room discourse, instructing his disciples, teaching them before his passion, before his death and resurrection that is to come. And in John chapter 15, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You hear that? A command. Kind of like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. Here's a command. Abide in Jesus' love. And then in one of those commonly read books, right? How We read from the book of Jude all the time, don't we? Jude, verse 21, doesn't even have chapters. Verse 21, again, commanded, keep yourselves in the love of God. How are we doing with that? You follow that command? To stay, to keep ourselves in the love of God. Or how about Paul, that theologian that we view as so austere, so rigid, so firm, right? Listen to what he says as he prays for the church. So this is his prayer for you and I. He prays that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend along with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Did you hear that? Paul called you weak. Any of you offended? He said, you think you understand the strength? His prayer for you is that you would have the strength to comprehend this multidimensionality of what is the love of God that surpasses 
your comprehension, that surpasses your knowledge. Think maybe we should have a little humility and admit maybe we don't understand or embrace the love of God like we think we do. See, we've been looking at this series of Encountering Jesus, and this morning we are encountering the radical, scandalous, and it is scandalous, love of God. See, the love of God is depicted in this story as a party, as a feast, as a celebration. The father throwing his arms around his lost son who has been found, hugging him, weeping over him, embracing him, kissing him. And in a sermon he wrote on this, Charles Spurgeon said that he's kissing him eagerly and over and over again. Let's be honest with ourselves. Any of you offended by this? A little uncomfortable with this? Kind of squirming in your chairs a little bit? The picture of God the Father embracing and hugging and weeping and kissing over and over again? This kind of over-the-top extravagant love. See, how comfortable are you with living with that kind of love? How are you doing obeying and heeding the instruction, the command to keep yourself in the love of God, to abide in his love. Little books, only 140 pages that I read kind of preparing for this sermon. I've read it actually several times. It's written by a man by the name of Henry Nowen. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And he wrote this book after having an encounter with Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. This stirred his soul and moved him to such an extent that he actually took a trip to St. Petersburg in Russia to go to the hermitage to sit before and to look at this particular painting. And he basically calls it a story of homecoming. He says that home is the center of our being where God is to dwell. That our home is really with God. Reflecting on verses like we are citizens of heaven. And in it, he writes, he says, each little step towards the center, towards the center of love, seemed like an impossible demand, a demand requiring me to let go one more time from wanting to be in control, to give up one more time the desire to predict life, to die one more time to the fear of not knowing where it all will lead, and to surrender one more time to a love that knows no limits. And still I knew that I would never be able to live the great commandment to love without allowing myself to be loved without conditions or prerequisites. The journey from teaching about love to allowing myself to be loved proved much longer than I realized. See, I think if we don't resonate with those words, we have not encountered, really encountered. We may understand intellectually, but we don't know the extravagant, lavish, what Paul calls the height, the width, the breadth, and the depth of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, this particular parable, this story is a powerful story that shatters all human categories, that changes paradigms, because it gives us a gospel paradigm showing us who God is, who we are, our relationship to him, and the fruit of that, our relationship to others. And let's ask two questions of the text as we approach it this morning. As we encounter the love of Christ, let's ask ourselves, first of all, who is this love given to? So in other words, we're going to explore a little bit the recipients of this love. 
pretty guys, the younger son and older brother, as we're going to see, right? Who are the recipients of this love? And then secondly, what does this love look like? So first of all, who is this love given to? And again, let's remind ourselves of the context of the story. Luke 15 begins, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. We're not the only ones who are uncomfortable and squirming a little bit with encountering the love of God in Christ Jesus. The moral police, the religious leaders, the gatekeepers, the ones who are responsible for saying, you are allowed in, very few of you, you, the grand majority, stay out. They were the ones who were uncomfortable with Jesus receiving or welcoming or accepting sinners and eating with them. And recognize what eating was, especially in that ancient Near Eastern culture. That is a symbol of intimate fellowship. That's relationship. Okay? Jesus is basically going under the Dunlawton Bridge to seek out the homeless, the outcasts and the marginalized of society. And he's not just saying, here's a handout. He's saying, let's break bread together. Tell me your story. I want to get to know you. I want to hear your dreams. I want to hear your hopes. Tell me your shame. Tell me how you really feel. He's entering into relationship. And so the moral police, they're not too happy about that. They don't like the outcasts of society being welcomed into their church, into their place. And so Jesus is answering their objections, their grumbling, by giving this story that gives them an entire new paradigm. And he begins in verse 11, there's a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to him. So he divided, which by the way, and we're going to see, this is unbelievable love in the first place. Even before the reconciliation, the fact that the father would divide his property up and give, them, give him his request. And we'll see that in just a minute. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. In other words, get me as far away from home, heritage, my father, my life, as far away as I can. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who, and get this irony of ironies, sent this boy into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pig ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he arose and he came to his father. Now, commentators rightly point out that Luke tells this story very matter-of-factly. It's almost like, let's sit, there's a man, he had two sons. The younger one did this. This is where he went, squandered it all in wild living. But he points out that it'd be very difficult to realize what an unheard-of event this would be in its original context. Kenneth Bailey, who wrote a book on this particular one, was one who worked over in the Middle East and in those countries for many, many years and revealing just how extravagant this love is and who this extravagant love is given to, Bailey writes, he says, for over 15 years I've been asking people of all walks of life from Morocco to India, from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. 
says the answer has always been emphatically the same. The conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Answer, never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Answer, impossible. Well, hypothetically, if anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him to within an inch of his life. Why? Because the request means he wants his father to die. We have to get it through and understand and actually feel this in our hearts that sin is much more than a behavioral concept. Sin is essentially relational. Sin is declaring your independence from God. It is running from God in order to control our own life. To basically say, I reject you as home. I reject you taking charge. I reject you no best. I will take charge of my life. I will control my life. That's why the journey home to love is the most difficult journey one can make. The underlying essence of sin is it's a relational category that you are running from the God who built you, who designed you, who created you. And so as Nowen reminds us, leaving home then is much more than a historical event bound to time and place. It is a denial of the spiritual reality that I belong to God with every part of my being, that God holds me safe in an eternal embrace, that I am indeed carved in the palms of God's hands and hidden in their shadows. Leaving home means ignoring the truth that God has fashioned me in secret molded me in the depths of the earth, knitted me together in my mother's womb. Leaving home is living as though I do not yet have a home and must look far and wide to find one. The younger son leaves home, spends his inheritance in wild, reckless living, wastes everything, literally has nothing, so that he's left in a pig pen wishing he could eat the pods the pigs eat. And then he comes to the end of himself and arises to come to his senses and go back to his father. Friends, truth be told, we are all both younger brothers and older brothers. We go in and out. We're prodigals and Pharisees. What are the ways you're like the younger son? What are the ways in your life that you declare your independence from God? Take control of your life. Refuse to die one more time to you being in control of your life. In those ways, even though they may look pretty, you're running away from home as your ultimate spiritual reality and running away from God. Sin is a relational category. But then let's take a look at the elder brother. The one who stays home physically, but I'm going to suggest leaves home as well. Verse 25, now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he calls one of the servants and asks what these things meant. You could, his curiosities are raised. Why do I hear music and dancing, a celebration? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours 
came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now let me ask an honest question. Any of you sympathizing with the older brother? <laughs> Don't, it's natural to go, this isn't fair. That guy got the inheritance already. I'm over here slaving. I've stayed home. I've tried to do it all right. He gets the party and I don't. It's easy to be the older brother. See, we all both move in and out of being prodigals and older brothers. There are no worthy recipients of the love of God. But look at the characteristics of the older brother. He's bitter and angry. The text says he was angry. He refused to go into the party. Recognize again in the original context, the father having to go out and entreat him. That means this older brother is publicly shaming and humiliating his father. He is completely shaming him of his dignity by making a public scene. He's also incredibly judgmental. This son of yours, he won't even call him my brother. He's jealous, calling God unfair. Where's my party? Where's my celebration? I want the calf, medium rare, please, thank you. Let's serve it up. And even his so-called obedience is at best what we would call a slavish obedience, not a loving or joyful obedience. When he says, I've never disobeyed your command. Look, these many years I've served you. That doesn't sound like a joyful heart, does it? These are the recipients of the Father's love. One who wishes the Father dead and wants as far away from home as possible. One who even stays has zero love for his Father and is willing to publicly humiliate him. Welcome to the church. Take a look around and including in the mirror because we are the recipients. We are the unworthy prodigals and Pharisees who are the recipients of God's over-the-top, overly generous, lavishing, extravagant love. What does that love look like? Look at verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, think about this. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him means what? The father had to be looking for him. The father had to be active and intentional about searching for his lost son. Do you recognize, first of all, talk about extravagant love, that when we run away, God is searching for you? That while you're still a long way off doing your own thing, declaring your independence from God, your heavenly father is pursuing you. That this kind of extravagant love is a pursuing love. He's, while you're a long way off, he's searching for you. And then it says he felt compassion, and the word literally means from his bowels. The intensity of what God feels towards us as he's searching for us. And so, and no Jewish father would do this, this next verb, and ran. That means if you picture the way he'd be dressed, he has to have kind of that long skirt on. He's lifting up his skirt to run. He is utterly embarrassing and humiliating himself. Why? Because he finds you worth it. And we keep his love at a distance. And the son, of course, and this is why it's a flawed repentance. We have to understand his repentance. He's coming home. 
but it's not a per. The son says to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says to his servants, cuts him off, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. We must eat and celebrate it. This is utterly astounding. And again, we're reminded by scholars that almost any other Middle Eastern father would have hit the returning son, beaten him, threw him out without a cent. This father is radically different. And again, look at something. The embrace of the father, the kiss. They are all before the son's speech. The father is totally humiliating himself, totally acting in an undignified way in his lavishing of love upon the returning son. And as one commentator reminds us, the love of God is prior to the repentance and actually causes the repentance. True repentance is caused by the love of God. It is not that the father loved him because of his repentance. His performance did not elicit the love from the father. See, this is the flawed part of the younger son's repentance. He says, make me like one of your hired servants. You can almost see his wheels turning, saying, I should do things more like my older brother. He's kind of in daddy's good graces. He stayed home, so make me like one of your hired servants. I'll clean myself up first, then maybe my father will take me back. But the love of the father is nothing like we have ever known or even imagined. Because his love is a function of his loveliness. See, this is the kind of love prophesied in Zephaniah 3 that says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you imagine how different we would be if this was the major voice we were hearing. How the outward position of freedom that we have in Christ would be matched by an inner freedom. If we truly drew near and didn't keep distant, see, whether we admit it or not, we're scared to death of the love of God because the love of God forces us to be different. You can't live in fear. You can't live in suspicion. You can't live in lack of trust. You can't live in anxiety. You can't live in defensiveness. You can't live in insecurity because the love of God, height, width, breadth, and depth, is more powerful and greater than any of those things. But let's be honest, we don't want to change. We're comfortable relating and being like we've always been. We're comfortable dealing with life, approaching God, ourselves, and others in exactly the same way we always have. So we believe, but we don't believe. We keep it at a distance rather than encountering daily the love of Christ that will change us. Imagine how different we would be. How much more love, how much more inner freedom that would allow us to take risks. Allow us to actually enter in and understand. Allow us to be wrong. Allow us to have real inner freedom and joy. What do we need to experience this kind of love? For this to be more a part. Not of, I'm not preaching for revival right now. I'm preaching for normal Christian living. Jude didn't just say, wait a second, if you throw up a tent and have a revival meeting, keep ourselves in the love of God. 
Jesus didn't say abide in Jesus' love, oh, once every 75 years. He meant for this to be daily, ongoing, the norm for the Christian. We need to see Jesus. And we need to see, just like we are truly prodigals and older brothers, Jesus became the truest prodigal and also the truest older brother. He is the one who's the true prodigal and the true elder brother. Henry now and again reminds us that Jesus is the true prodigal. He writes, I am touching here the mystery that Jesus himself became the prodigal son for our sake. He writes, he left the house of his heavenly father, came to a foreign country, gave away all that he had, and returned through his cross to his father's home. And all of this he did, not as a rebellious son, but as a willing, obedient son, sent out to bring home all the lost children of God. Jesus, who told the story to those who criticized him, grumbled against him for associating with sinners, himself lived the long and painful journey that he describes. He's the prodigal who left his father's house. Heaven came down to earth so that he could bring his elect lost children of God back home. Jesus is the true prodigal. He's also the true elder brother. Tim Keller in his exposition on this text reminds us that the elder brother in this story is actually one of Jesus' enemies. He says, we have to notice in the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, Jesus says there's something that's lost and there is a search. What's different in this third parable, the parable of the two sons, is there's no search. And he writes, might the older brother have searched out for his younger brother on behalf of his father? As the older brother in that Jewish family, it would have been his job to take upon himself the responsibility of reconciling younger son to father. But here we see there's no search. That the elder brother here represents the Pharisees and scribes who resent and grumble against Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so Keller writes, Jesus has stepped out of the parable here and puts in the cardboard figure of the older brother. But then he says, Jesus is the true older brother. He does what the Pharisees and scribes refuse to do. Verse 31, if you look at the text, when the father says to the older brother, all I have is yours, you do recognize that would be literally true. That the younger son has already received and squandered and spent his share of the estate. So there's nothing left. So if the younger brother is going to come in and the father is going to give him a robe and shoes and a fattened calf and a ring, the only way for him to get it is through the older brother because the younger son has already taken and spent everything that he has a right to. Which is probably one reason why the older brother is so mad when he learns that the younger brother has been given the robe, the ring, and the sandals because whose robe and ring and sandals are they? Excuse me, you're giving away my stuff. They're his robe, they're his ring, they're his shoes. That's his party. See, the only way for the prodigal to get back into the father's heart is through the elder brother. And what kind of elder brother does he have? A greedy, stingy, judgmental one who thinks, wait a second, that's my stuff. 
But what kind of elder brother do you have? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for your sakes, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. See, look at Jesus. Our true older brother was literally stripped of his robe and given a crown of thorns. He was scourged, afflicted, cursed, so we could receive a robe signifying position, a ring signifying authority, shoes signifying freedom. Dr. Keller reminds us that the only way for you to get them is for Christ to lose them. And he did that for you and I. Do you see? The only way for you to experience the love of God the Father is for you to more and more deeply see that Jesus gave up the love of his Father so you could have it. That Jesus left home so you could have a home. That Jesus left his Father's heart so you could have a secure, neither death nor life, angels nor demons, principalities nor power, nor the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that was in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the love we encounter. This is scandalous love. This is extravagant love. Let's pray. Teach us, Father, to live. Paul wrote that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Teach us to live out of that rootedness and groundedness, recognizing that the love we encounter we truly don't understand. Oh, that we would have humility to admit we really don't get your love. We need to take it in and say, show us the implications of it. Show us the ways I'm fearful. Show us the ways I'm trying to prove my worth. Project an image. The way I get so just tied up in knots, worried about kids or grandkids, failing or forgetting to recognize you write our story. As Gabe read in the psalm earlier, forget not all his benefits. And as Paul prayed, all his benefits are every spiritual blessing kept secure for us in the heavenly places. Help us to remember the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.